You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. If you would, go ahead and open your Bible to Exodus chapter 14. It's easy for those of us that have never played college sports or good enough to play college sports to make fun of people like Taylor. So for Brad and I, who couldn't cut it. So I legitimately thought I was good at basketball until the seventh grade had tryouts. And that's when I realized objectively that I wasn't good at basketball and was introduced to intramural. So that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. I'm just giving you guys a moment to turn to Exodus chapter 14. So Exodus 14 is where we're going to be at today. This is, some would argue, the pinnacle, the apex, the zenith of Exodus. This is the Exodus account. This is where God is delivering his people. He's taking them out of the land of slavery, bringing them out of oppression and bondage into a life that represents new life, liberty, and freedom. So that's where we're going to be at today, Exodus chapter 14. And our main point is going to be this. Be still, our God is the faithful shepherd. Be still, our God is the faithful shepherd. Our stillness is going to be directly contingent upon what we know about God. And so what we have before us is revelation of who God is. When we open our Bible, what we're actually opening, what we're beholding, what we're reading is God's revelation of himself. It's divine. It's authoritative. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It is God's word. We're not reading a historical fiction. We're reading historical nonfiction. We're reading something that is accurate. And I say that to say, because that's been a theme throughout Exodus. God is revealing who he is. We've seen that. And we see that even today. If you'll look with me in, in Exodus chapter 14, you'll see that in verse four, it says this, and this is God speaking. He says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his toes. And the Egyptians, look, shall know 
that I am the Lord. And they did so. You can, you can fast forward to verse 18. And it says this, is the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then it ends in 31 with Israel saw, they were able to see the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord. What we're getting is a revelation of who God is. We open our Bibles to know God more. We have this tremendous gift that sits before us that we get to open up and learn about who God is. There's nothing more excited, exciting to me. There's nothing that I'm more passionate about than God's word, which is lifting up, showing, and displaying the gospel from beginning to end. And so that's what we're going to see today. Be still and know that God is the faithful shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revelation. We thank you that you want to reveal yourself to your creation and that you've done so faithfully, accurately. Father, we're not left to try to figure out what you're like or who you are. Your word tells us explicitly who you are. You are holy. You are just. You are righteous. You are kind, compassionate, and merciful. You are steadfast. You are unchangeable. You are majestic, glorious. Father, captivate our attention this morning through your word. Captivate our hearts, challenge us, press us, heal us, encourage us. Jesus, thank you for saving us. And I say us because you've saved a people. God, we see your saving of the nation of Israel. Jesus, we see your saving of your bride, your body, the church. Help me to preach and teach your word faithfully and accurately this morning. Let us listen in, with, with just attention for ourselves, not for those next to us. Father, speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a story that even if you're not super familiar with Christianity or your Bible, that people, I mean, typically people know about. But also what has happened throughout the years is people have tried to do something to mess with the story and say that it's just not true and that it's a miracle that can't be proven. And I love this story of, <clears throat> of one pastor and one author who tells the story of another liberal pastor who visited an African-American church. And this liberal pastor was expounding on the Exodus story and the crossing of the Red Sea. And one African-American fellow in the congregation said this, praise the Lord, taking all them people through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle the liberal pastor was frustrated because he hadn't got to the point where he was going to expose that that's not what really happened. He said, if you know anything about it, the tides kind of ebb and flow. So they were on a low tide and they were essentially walking through six inches of water. The same gentleman said, praise the Lord, drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. It's, this is a true story. And either way, Whichever way you want to cut it, it's still going to be a miracle, which I think is really brilliant and, and just profound about the story. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at through these sections today is we're going to look at be still the faithful shepherd guides, the faithful shepherd guides, read Psalm 23, meditate on it, read it and read it again, because you see that it's the Lord that leads us beside still waters. You see that it's the Lord that leads us to lie down in green pastures. You see that it's the Lord that leads us in paths of righteousness. A, a, a good shepherd, and ultimately the chief shepherd leads and he guides. Then we're going to look at, be still, the faithful shepherd is all powerful. Again, you, you can only have so much trust in someone based upon how powerful they are. And so we're going to look at 
God's power. It's something that we don't often talk about because in society, we oftentimes view power as a bad thing. And then we're going to look at be still the faithful shepherd fought for his people. So let's look at this. Be still the faithful shepherd guides. How do we see the faithful shepherd guiding? I think what's going to help us first is because I can't unpack all of chapter 14 today. I'm just going to give you just a quick, quick summary of what is taking place here. Chris did a great job last week recapping what's led to the events that, that, that's got us here. But Israel was bound in oppression by the Egyptians for 400 years. We've seen horrible, horrific things that they've done. They drowned their boys in the Nile River. Today we see God's justice as he drowns the Egyptians in the Red Sea. What we're also seeing is God's power displayed through the 10 plagues. What we got to see is God's power displayed through the Passover. And then where we're at today is the Israelites have left Egypt and now they are wandering out and they are approaching the Red Sea. And then we're stuck going, what's going to happen? And we see this and we see first that God is the faithful shepherd who guides his people. Look here, chapter 14, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. So they're already moving in a direction and the Lord tells them to turn back. Remember, he's not just telling a few people. This is roughly, people uh, estimate around 2 million people, okay? So it's, it's tough to turn around 200 people, 2 million people. So <clears throat> tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharioth between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. We also see this. If you keep going in verse 19, the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. Again, be still. The faithful shepherd guides. He's guiding and leading them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. Be still the faithful shepherd guides. He leads. He's going before his people. He's going behind his people. He's standing between his people. He's guiding them. He's leading them. He's doing what a shepherd does to a sheep. He's protecting them. Verse 24, and in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian forces in a panic. What we're getting to see in this story and in this account is that God is the faithful shepherd who guides his people. This move made no military sense. If you're able to see it on a map, uh, essentially the people are stuck and they're stuck in such a position in such a way that there's nowhere to turn and nowhere to go other than to trust in God. And I'll say this, sometimes what the faithful shepherd does is the faithful shepherd leads us into situations and circumstance that we have no other place to turn to other than God himself. He will lead us to where we would never go on our own so we can have a trust and a faith that we cannot establish unless we were going in those types of places. He's going to take us to places like this so he deepens our trust, our reliance, and our dependence on him. It's what he's doing here because anyone that looks at this goes, this makes no sense. Why would God be putting them in this situation? They're, they're essentially funneled into a trap. God's like, yeah, exactly. You're going to have another place to look. You're going to have another place to turn 
other than to me. And maybe some of you guys are here this morning and that's where you're at. You're in a situation in life that you can't make sense of. You feel like you're backed into a corner and you're trying to figure out how to get out of it. And you go, what is going on? Do you trust in God, your faithful shepherd? Can you be still to know that your faithful shepherd guides you and he'll take you to difficult places in life because he's going to strengthen and deepen your faith and your trust in him through those situations? I'm gonna tell you that's not easy, that's painful, and that's difficult. What's also unique about this is that what God is doing is he's exposing how puny their gods are through the writing here. And I, and, and I say that because Ra was the sun god, and he was worshipped by the Egyptians. And so God didn't deliver Egypt through the middle of the night. He waited till the morning at daybreak. So look back here with me at verse 24. And in the morning, so God waits, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. Their God was nowhere. It was daybreak. The author's purposely showing here, Ra, who should have been watching them, who should have been watching over them and protecting him, he's nowhere, he's nothing. God waits till sunlight, till daybreak and shows, no, 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 there's only one God and Ra is not him. He cannot rescue you. The other thing that is being shown here is Baal, if we go back to verse two and we see that name Baal, Zephon, the author purposely shows it again in verse nine. If you look at the end of verse nine, they're encamped by the sea in front of Baal, Zephon. That's the storm God, another Canaanite God, false God. So they're purposely encamped by the God who controls the storm and who controls the sea. And they're also going at daybreak because Ra should have been able to protect them. The storm God is nowhere to be found and Ra is nowhere to be found. God is protecting his people, which gives us comfort to know that we can be still and know that our faithful shepherd guides us. Even if we're in a situation, in a circumstance in life where we look at it and we go, this makes no sense. God, what are you doing? I don't know what we're doing here or how we're here. We can trust that the faithful shepherd has guided us and placed us in a unique position to show and display that the only thing we can do is look to him to guide, guard, lead, and protect us in it. And maybe you're someone who feels out of control because of the situation you're in. I would argue this, that's going to be a good thing, though a painful thing, because you'll realize there's only one who's in control and it's the faithful shepherd. So <clears throat> that's where we're starting off. The revelation of who God is, to be still and know that the faithful shepherd guides. But we also need to know this, that the way that God guides his local church is not through subjective revelation, not through just mystically trying to figure stuff out. God guides his people, and he always has through the proclamation of his word, through his word. That's why it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Quite literally, what shepherds would do is they would take lamps and they would put them on their feet so that the lamps would produce light in the night. And so that light would uh, illuminate their path so they could see where they're going. If not, they would lead themselves off a cliff and the sheep with them. So when the word says, your word is a lamp under my feet, the good shepherd leads and guides us through his word. And he leads the local church through his word, which is why it's important for us to be in his word, to know his word. Otherwise, when scripture says, gently restore your brothers and sisters that are falling into sin, how will we even know what sin is? How will we even know what's going on in their lives if we're not grounded in the word? How will we combat what the lies of the enemy are if we don't even know them? We watched Jesus when he was tempted. He countered every lie with the truth of God's word. 
When we think of spiritual disciplines, it's a good thing to think about reading those for the development of our lives, for nurturing of our souls, but we should also think about them or reading them because I have a family and God's called me to also help my family stay on the path that his word is laid out. And so first we can be still and know that our good shepherd guides. But next we can see, we can be still that the faithful shepherd is all powerful. We were camping this summer at one of our camp spots. Our families tried out now for a couple times and we were there. I think it was our first day there. And there was another family or group of people there and they were, they were going pretty hard all day. I think they were playing like, playing like floating beer pong or something. And they were rowdy. They had their music on, all, all sorts of stuff like that. Well, evening came. So we set up our little fire and we were out there with our, I was out there with my three kids. My wife was in our little camper. And this group gets loud, specifically this one guy. And I'll just say, as someone who fought for quite a while in MMA, the most rowdiest teammate I had was Hawaiian. They just loved to scrap and loved to throw down. And this gentleman was Hawaiian. And so I kind of knew what was sitting before me, okay? And so this guy's getting real loud. He's getting very belligerent. And he's in some sort of fight, squabble, or argument with other people in his camp. They're just like the next, they're not the next camp, but like the, the camp over from us. I could see the fear starting to rise in my kids because of this guy, because of his temperament, because of what he was saying. He was getting louder and getting louder. Well, I had, I had reached my point. <laughs> and I said something along the lines of, that's enough or knock it off, right? And I like to sound calm always because it's better. You know, it sounds better up here, but it was a little more heightened than that. So I said that, and this gentleman came barreling around cars and everything like that. And he's like, oh, you got so you want to? And I was like, oh boy, here it goes. I was just trying to, just trying to stop the situation, right? And so he comes barreling around into our camp. And so I stand up out of my chair and, and I'm like, I think I just said it again. I'll have to check with my wife. But I was like, that's enough. My wife at this point had moved to like the screen door of our camper. And she was like looking out, like what's going down? So he comes around the corner. He's like, I'm sorry. And then walks away. And I was like, sweet. <laughs> There's a sick part of me. I got to be straight that like, sometimes I'm like, I kind of want it to escalate. You know, I just kind of want to see what would happen. Maybe if I still got a little bit, I'm saying that's a sinful side of me. Just maybe wants to try to exercise some of the skills. So that's that. And my wife said, that's a classic story of someone coming around, maybe looking at the person, then going, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Okay. I say all that to share this. What roused me and, and what brought that out of me is someone putting terror and fear inside of my children. And I've said that before. If, if you want to get a rise, an emotional rise out of me, my wife will tell you, I'm pretty laid back most of the time. But, but, but if you want to bring that out, it's messing with my kiddos. It's messing with my family. What we're getting to see that we can be still because the faithful shepherd is all powerful. My daughter, Joey goes, dad, I'm glad you can protect us. But here's the reality. Dad's not always going to be there to protect her. And dad's not all powerful. Dad has a lot of limitations. It's important for us to know who the faithful shepherd is that guides us and his power to protect us. Otherwise, if you have trust God like raw, if you have a puny God like Baal, Zephon, then you have no trust in your God's power to protect and come through. Christians, we have an all-powerful God. It's called God's being omnipotence. That's what it is. It's his omnipotence. He is all 
powerful, meaning he has no limits. He has no limitations. He's all powerful. This is a really good thing. When we think of power, we think through it of the world's lens of some narcissistic who's narcissistic and constantly seeking their own self-preservation and their own self-glory. We see God uses his power in this story to save his children. We see that God uses his power for salvation, and we see God's power displayed perfectly on the cross, not in a way that the world would define power, but God redefining what true power is. We can be still and know that the faithful shepherd is all-powerful. The problem is, is Israel's not beholding their God. They're beholding Egypt and the chariots coming before them. Let's look at the text. Jump down to verse 10, then we're going to jump back up. Verse 10 says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So what's happening? Pharaoh and the Egyptians are coming near. And notice the word here. It says that they were beholding. The problem is they were beholding this army, 600 chariots, from someone who spends a decent amount of time out in the woods elk hunting. When we bump into a a, a herd of elk, as you guys know, we're never successful. But when we do get into elk, 15 or 20 elk make a lot of racket. Imagine what the sound of 600 horses with chariots sounds like, not to mention all the men on foot coming after them. You see, when Israel looked up, they saw that, probably dust in the desert, heard that, could feel the rumbling coming toward them. Their problem was they were still beholding the wrong thing. Look at verse 6. What were they beholding again? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. What we're seeing is we're seeing Israel beholding Egypt's power, forgetting who is with them and who is for them and the infinite power of God. And that's oftentimes our problem in life is we spend time beholding the powers of this world beholding the situation and circumstance that's before us instead of knowing and and doing this, beholding the almighty and all-powerful God that holds us, that is with us, and that is for us. I mean, they just saw the 10 plagues. God decreating. They just saw the Passover. They're getting ready to see this, but they're going to quickly forget again. they, They are beholding the chariots. They're beholding what the world deems as powerful, forgetting how powerful our God is. We can only be still when we know that the faithful shepherd is all-powerful, that he brings beauty out of chaos. Think about the cross with me. Everyone looks at the cross in that moment and go, all is lost. The Messiah, he's defeated. The king has been beaten. All is lost. And we know on this side of it, God says, all has been won. (laughs) we're able to now behold that God brought something that people at that time would go, oh man, he lost. Something that looks like chaos and destruction. And God goes, oh, because I'm all powerful. I brought redemption through what took place there to the world. Look at verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Maybe you've seen the pictures, maybe you've seen the movie, but this is it. The waters part. They're divided. God brings a strong east wind. God doesn't need to bring an east wind, so we have to wonder, what's that doing there? Ian did a great job unpacking it. What we're seeing is the creator, 
Our God is all-powerful. He is the creator. And in creation, he was separating water and land for a place for his people to dwell. In Genesis 8, we see that God is using water to bring about his wrath, but then he causes a wind to come and makes dry land for his people to dwell. Here, God is parting the water, delivering his people, and giving them a new life and a new place to dwell. He's using this language to remind Israel, I am all-powerful. The God who's here right now is the God that controls everything. There is not a rogue molecule on this planet that God has not controlled. We see this when Christ comes. His people in the boat with him, they're freaking out. Freaking out. I love it. Jesus is taking a nap. <laughs> and, and they're waking up. They're like, do you not care? We're all going to die. And so he stands up and he, and, and he looks out at the sea and says, be calm. And the sea hears the voice of its creator and says, okay, <laughs> that is power. And what he's saying here and what he's showing here is we can be still because the God that guides us, who's our faithful shepherd, is the same God who is all-powerful and he uses his power with us and for us. Our problem is, is that we trust in our chariots, right? We trust in our chariots. We trust in the things of this world. We trust in our five-year plan. And so we, we have things mapped out. We have a game plan. The game plan fall, falls apart. We fall apart because that game plan was actually our chair. We were not beholding and putting our trust in God's power. We were putting our trust in our game plan. You see, the other thing that, 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 that we put our trust in, our chariot, so to speak, are our strengths. We put our trust in our strengths, but when our strengths fail us, we don't know what to do with it. Israel's not a position where they can put their trust in their, in their strengths. You, you got to remember, it's not like they were sitting in Israel or in Egypt for 400 years doing swimming lessons. They don't know how to swim, likely. They definitely weren't taking jujitsu classes, so they don't know how to fight. So they're in this position where they have to trust God, not their own strengths. But there's also another side of this. Some of our chariots are our weaknesses. Instead of us looking to God, all we can do is behold what's wrong with us instead of what's right with him. But sometimes we put our, our weight and our trust and our parenting tactics over God's saving power. What we're beholding is how well we're parenting. And, and for our marriages to work out better, we're beholding how well we are being a spouse. We have a responsibility to guide lead and shepherd our children, but we are powerless to save our children. That should bring a sense of peace and freedom that we can point them to Christ, but it's on God to save our children. You see, we have a responsibility to be a good employee, but we can't have any sort of impact on the kind of person our boss is going to be, but that's not on us. We have a responsibility to preach and share and evangelize and share the gospel but it's not on us to regenerate hearts and make them come alive. That's on God. That's a weight lifted, a responsibility that we're not intended to carry. Instead, we behold God's power, who he alone brings light from darkness and new life from dead life. So I would ask this morning, maybe you can discuss with your gospel communities, what are the chariots in your life that you're beholding and trusting that maybe God is ripping apart? Maybe he's putting mud in the tires. Maybe they're falling apart. Let me say this as lovingly as I can. That's probably going to be a good thing, though it's a painful thing. Because sometimes God strips away the things that we put our trust and faith in so that we can realign and behold that he is the good shepherd who is all-powerful and we can be still. And we look at this, that God has given 
the most powerful weapon that we can. If, if we can be still and know that our good shepherd guides and he's given his word to guide us, we can be still and know that the good shepherd's all powerful. We can know that he's given us the power of prayer, direct line, direct communication with him at all times. So instead of figuring out stuff, recreating a game plan, trying to do this and trying to do that, what we can do is turn to God in prayer. I got to love with you guys. Hard week, uh, some, so, some difficult news. I can't unpack all that but I would say I've experienced more anger this week than maybe I, I have since I've been a Christian. I remember actually going out in my garage and, and seeing uh, like a big cardboard box from a Christmas present. And I was like, I think I'm going to rip that thing to shreds. And then I was like, what if I can't? <laughs> then I'm going to be more mad that I can't rip the box to shreds and I'll be more angry, right? But, but I say this because my first response to the news and all that, that was happened was game planning, strategy, much like Jacob in the Bible, was anger was wanting to lash out, do stuff like that. Because I forget, I serve an all-powerful God who loves me. And he listens to me every time I say his name. I have divine access to the divine, powerful God. That's our first response. That's our prayer's first response. That's what community essentially is for, pointing us back to God, pointing us back to Christ and what he's done, and then saying, I'm going to bear this burden with you. I'm going to come alongside you, and I'm going to pray for you. Next, we see that we can be still because the faithful shepherd fought for his people. I want to do justice to this text, but there's no way I can in the amount of time that we have left. But this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Look here with me. Verse 13, be still, the faithful shepherd fought for his people. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord. This is the first time salvation is used in the Bible, and it's God's work, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Moses like, shh, be silent, be still. You're going to see God work. The, the people that are against you, you're not going to see them again. This is not your fight. This is God's fight. He's fighting for you. Just sit there and be quiet. We have to see this. God did not position them at the Red Sea and then say, hey, before I deliver you, a couple things I want to work through. Ten commandments. I'm going to leave you guys here for a couple months. Let's work that out. See how you guys obey these. And if you obey them good enough, then I'll take you across the Red Sea. If you're wondering if we can see the gospel, the good news in the Old Testament, look here. God delivers his people not based upon anything that they have done, not anything that they do. He doesn't give them the law until they get to Sinai. God delivers his people based upon his goodness and his grace. Then he gives them the law. It's not a backward order. It's not God saying, do this, obey this, and I'll deliver you. God's saying, I'm delivering you by my grace. Now obey. Maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you've never understood the gospel like that, but I need you to hear it and understand it like that because that's what it is. It's not do and then get, it's done, received, and now we do. Look at here, though. Let's go back to the verse before this, because we'd have to wonder, well, God's going to destroy the Egyptians. He's going to bring the water of them. He's going to drown them. But are the Israelites innocent? Look here, verse 11. They said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Look at what Psalm 106 says, 6 through 8. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. 
We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Israel is no less sinful than the Egyptians. So why did God save them? There's no other reason and no other explanation other than grace, a gift that they received that they were not worthy of. That's it. They were both sinful, but yet the water comes down over one of them. We see this in verse 15, that the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And we see in verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What happens in this story is God creates two walls. What does the water represent in the Bible? God's wrath. When God brings his wrath upon the earth in the story of Moses, what we see is God destroying the unrighteous and saving his elect. Moses, or I'm sorry, Noah and his family because of grace. What we see here is the nation of Israel walking through. The water represents God's wrath. God is holding back his wrath by a staff. By a man there with a wooden staff, he's holding back his wrath. The Israelites walk through. You have to understand that there are probably some that walk through going, this is awesome. And there's also some that walk through going, we're going to be dead at any moment. But we're not saved by the quantity of our faith or the quality of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. All of them got to the other side. Some may be doubting, some confident. God held back his wrath from his people. And then the Egyptians go through and God pours out his wrath and consumes them. What is this pointing to? When we get to Jesus's life at the very beginning of his ministry, we see something unique. We see John the Baptist telling Jesus that he doesn't want to baptize him. And Jesus saying, no, you're going to baptize me. Why? Because John doesn't want to put him in the water because John knows what that represents. One, it represents that Jesus would be identifying himself as a sinner. And two, he knows that plenty of other sinners have been in that water and the Messiah doesn't deserve to go there. And Jesus says, no, but you must. So he's going to him. The very start of Jesus' ministry, he's taken underwater to show this. I am going to be identified as a sinner at the end of my life. I'm going to take on sin. And through what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring about new life and new creation. You see, Moses delivered God's people with a wooden staff. But the greater Moses comes. His name is Jesus. And he delivers people with the wooden cross. Moses' deliverance was a one-time thing because the Israelites would need to be saved again and again. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is a once-and-for-all-time sacrifice. You see, the sea represents God's wrath and justice, but also his mercy and grace. The cross represents both. It's where God's justice and wrath and his mercy and grace meet together with the Savior stretched wide. The wrath of God comes for the punishment of our sins and engulfs Jesus he is consumed by the wrath of God because what he did is he took all of our sin upon himself and then all of the wrath that that deserved. And then the outworking of this is, is what we call justification. Jesus takes all that's ours, our sin, and makes it his. But he also takes all of his guiltless, flawlessness, and obedience and makes it ours. All of our sin fell on him and all of his righteousness fell on us. The outworking of the gospel, which is the good news of what Christ has done, 
is the most beautiful doctrine to me, our union with Jesus Christ. I'm going to show a quick clip, real quick. It's of my daughter playing basketball. Well, I don't know how well you can see it. She'll come into view soon. This girl's setting up, setting up again, setting up. There's my daughter. Yeah! Uh, She did this multiple times. You can cut it now, Zach. It's a proud dad, right? One parent was like, you can't take the ball in basketball and like learn the rules, because you can. Uh, I say this because guess who the only parent was that was rejoicing in a moment like this? Me, because I am with my daughter. I am for my daughter. When my daughter experiences something painful, I experience that. I grieve with her. When my daughter experiences something joyful, I experience that with her. Ian read something from Romans this morning. You see, Romans is this beautiful picture of what the church celebrates as baptism. And yes, baptism shows that there's a cleansing that, that takes place where our sin is washed and then Christ's righteousness is added. But do you know what baptism shows? Our union with Jesus Christ. It, it, it wouldn't be the best news if our sins were washed away and we were left there. It also wouldn't be the best news if just Jesus' righteousness was added. What is the implications of that? It's that we're united together with him for all of eternity and nothing can separate. Real quick, if I take this real quick, I want to give an, an illustration to show. Here's water from two separate sources. Here's tap water as I poured in. Here's bottled water as I poured in. If I asked one of you to separate the water that's been poured from two separate sources in this glass, you would be like, that's impossible. That is more possible than separating the union that you have with Jesus Christ. That's why over 200 times in the New Testament, the word united with Christ, in Christ, is used over and over and over again. If there's something that is screaming at us in the New Testament, it's that you are one with Jesus Christ. What baptism is, is a picture of showing that we are united with Christ. We were buried with him. But before that, we died with him on the cross. Scripture uses this language. We were crucified with him. Our sins went with him. We were buried with him. Our sins went down in the grave with him. We were raised with him to new creatures. Did you know that you are victorious, not because you have conquered your sin, but because Jesus conquered them for you and God will only see you as a victor? I think the most beautiful thing that we get to see as a church family and and celebrate as, as a church is the gospel and then the picture the New Testament gives us, communion every week. Every week we get to celebrate, taste, see, and experience what people for 2,000 years have been eating and celebrating, but we also get the picture of baptism. Baptism shows that we are now one with Christ, that like, like Israel, we have gone through the waters into new life, not because we have done that, but because Christ did it for us. From captives to freedom, all by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Let me say this in closing, and I'll call the worship team. I have faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in pedo infant baptism. I just want to share something real quick. Why we don't celebrate it and why we celebrate believer's baptism. When you are a child, you are still united to Adam. In other words, you are still in what we would call a fallen and sinful state. So when you're being baptized, you have not been yet united in union to Christ. That comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We baptize people once they have a saving proclamation of faith and they are no longer united to Adam, they're united to Christ. That's what we're celebrating. 
If you've not been baptized, I would love to baptize you. We would love to baptize you. We're going to have baptism next month. Please, let us celebrate with you. Let the church family celebrate with you. It's one of the ordinances that we celebrate because it's what Christ has given to the local church. Lastly, we put sin to death because we've been united to Christ. The believer lives in such a way to say, I'm no longer going to live as a slave because I'm not. I'm going to put sin to death. And it won't be enjoyable, Christian, not after the Spirit lives in you, because that is consistent to now who I am in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Praise you for the Exodus story. We celebrate what Christ has done. Amen.